Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today I'm focusing on the role cloud computing is playing at the National Institutes of Health. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Bethesda Health IT Day earlier this year. Jason Levine, the Associate Director of IT and Clinical Informatics at the National Cancer Institute. Jeff Schilling, the Acting CIO and Infrastructure and IT Operations Branch Chief for the National Cancer Institute. And Alistair Thompson, the CIO of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at NIH. First, we hear from Jason Levine and then from Jeff Schilling, both of NCI. My role largely is shepherding all of our investigators through the scientific computing part of IT. So how do they use IT resources in order to do science while not having to do IT themselves? And that's kind of what I take my mission to be, is to let our scientists do science and not have to worry about being IT folks. And uh, when I sort of came into this world about a decade ago, largely we were missing more than we were hitting on that because scientists found that they had to stand up their own IT resources in order to do their science. So if you were an innovative researcher who had a ton of data and needed to plow through and analyze it, um, you would buy computers to do that. And you would then you know, have to take on system administration tasks and keep up with security updates and all those sort of mind-numbing things that IT folks do every day as something that interests them, and to them is as interesting as the science is to the scientists. And to me, what this panel represents is, I, um, Jason just talked a lot about data and how sort of the cloud brings a lot of data, but to me, I'm thinking about the other side of that coin, and that's the infrastructure side of it. To me, the cloud being able to host the data is less important than the cloud serving as the compute, the actual way to stand up a server and not have to worry about hosting a physical box in your lab space, you know, next to your... Uh, uh, centrifuge that could explode at any time and uh, sort of take have the cloud take on the security aspect of it and the updates aspect of it and a lot of the system management side of it so that you can be a scientist. So the exciting thing to me and the reason why I like to participate in these is to talk about how we're now starting to leverage the cloud for infrastructure. And if an investigator comes to me and says, I need something to do X, one of my sort of lanes to look in is how can we utilize the cloud to stand up that compute resource and, and manage the security of it and, and manage access to it without having to have a physical box located somewhere on campus in a data center or in their lab or whatever. Before uh, Jeff goes, uh, I'm going to ask Jason my one follow-up. Right. All right. So when you talk about cloud as compute, when you talk about the cloud as making the infrastructure easier, do the scientists get it? Do they recognize, well, I'm free? Because a lot of this goes back to what we may hear uh, Jeff and Alistair talk about is shadow IT. Yeah, they do, but it's interesting because we had to first get them to make the first leap, which was giving up control of the IT resource. So first, they wanted to have it, right? I mean, there's something about the bird in the hand thing and having a computer in your lab that you can see and you, you know is yours. And the first step, which I've spent the last, I don't know, four or five years doing, was getting them to let us, my group, take physical servers and put them in data centers or stand up new servers for them in data centers. So now that I've gotten them to make that leap, it's super easy to take that next leap and say, do you care where the computer is? Do you care where the compute resource is taking place? Uh, you know, again, 10 years ago, they might have cared because the data sets were big enough and the data links to campus were small enough that maybe it would take some order of magnitude longer to push data to the cloud, to get the data from the cloud, whatever. But now those issues are largely solved issues, right? We have big pipes coming into campus and we have large pipes going into Amazon and Google and whoever, what other, whatever other cloud compute 
resource you're using that they don't care where it is. They just get to do their science. And you don't get calls anymore going, we need more service space, or hey, I'm being, I'm getting the message, we're running out of X. I mean, sh sure, sometimes we get those calls if we're not doing our job to sort of manage that proactively enough, but right in the past, if I get that call, I have to order a physical new blade to, or, you know, 10 new hard disks or whatever. And now I can just spin up another instance, and it's, it's super easy. All right. Uh, Jeff Schilling. Today I wanted to just mention two projects that we were doing at the National Cancer Institute that are really relevant to this topic. So one is we call the Genomic Data Commons. It's basically a shared space of which was created to uh, put the standardized data sets. So it's a, it's a large set of really highly curated genomic data. And so um, I wanted to mention too that as that became like physically available, it was really clear that people needed to be trained and pipelines needed to be built so it could be utilized. So I think when we, when we think of these cloud resources or any kind of compute resources, it really, you really have to have that uh, human component that, that it's not just the technology that they're lacking, but they're also lacking understanding of how to actually make it, make it valuable. And then the second thing that happened is that, of course, people are like, well, we have other kind of data. We don't just have genomic data. Where are we supposed to put that? So the NCI, along with NIH, is looking at these other data commons. And I did mention that the data is, is, is highly curated. So um, there's a lot of data that doesn't meet that definition. It has to be shared. There's rules and regulations that we have to follow around published data. So they're, they're also creating different tiers of value data. And so I think as everyone looks at things like this, you really have to create that kind of infrastructure. It's not just one giant place that we can go and get something. It's, it has to be this um, multi-valued, multi-access system. So that's uh, the, the Genomic Data Commons is just data. There's some pipelines there, but it's mainly data. And so we have a lot of data, many, many petabytes of this data. So it, it can't really be moved around very easily. So for the last four years, the National Cancer Institute has been working on something that they call the cloud pilots, which is basically a way to do compute and have that right next to the data. And it was kind of unique because they put out contracts of which then were three groups were selected and they use cooperation and competition to create the, the best solutions. So that was very, because there's so many things to overcome around you know, identity and access management storage. They're in different cloud providers, so they have whole different models around how you have to uh, function to save, to save money, you know, to use it properly. So they've graduated from that pilot's phase to the, now we call them the cloud resources. And eventually they'll go to, while we're funding them now to be in place, they will eventually be running by themselves so that we'll fund researchers and then researchers will have some kind of token or something that they can go and compute. So basically that model is, is one Jason mentioned where we basically have a lot of storage and then compute side by side. So that the large, the small institutions, small researchers at small places can compete with the scientists at large places. Uh, because there's, of course, innovation happening everywhere. So I think, we, of course, we have a lot of cloud computing going on, a lot of things like this, but, but those are really the two things that I think have not only been successful, I think they're kind of a model for a lot of how scientific computing can be done.
All right, so a couple of quick questions. First of all, uh, when you talk about data and value, the genomic data has is, is a great value, a curated value. And then you talked about other data that's maybe doesn't have the value, or how do you measure value, I guess, is the, my first question of the data. Well, I think it's very important to say um, you have to make sure you are measuring value because otherwise you end up with a statistic where we now we have a lot of even more worthless data. And, the, and data costs money, right, because you, you have to store it somewhere. But what they do is they basically, um, they'll do an analysis to say how much background information do you have on your data so that it's very easy for scientists to trust their own data because they collected it. They know where it's good and they know where it's weak. But if I'm going to do an analysis on someone else's data and try to base my career on that, I would really want to know that, that that data is not false or there's a lot of subtlety in the data. Like, for example, do I have full demographics of the people I collected it on? Or no, I just, I, I only have a very small set of demographics. So things like that. So what, they, what the curators do is they'll look at the data and they'll say, this isn't up to the quality that we can put at this level. Okay, and then the second piece of this is going back to the pilots. Uh, you said they've moved off of pilots. And the end goal, explain again what the end goal is, because you're saying, well, eventually we're going to get to the point where re we're going to fund researchers and they're going to use the cloud. But so they're going to pay for the cloud as well? That's, a, that's, a, that's a great point. So I, I, wish I, I wish I were more clear on that. Maybe so basically, me, so, yeah. we didn't know how to do that. So I, I think there was some innovation done at the time four years ago. And they said, we really don't know how to utilize the cloud in a cost-effective manner. And so they basically had people come and build a system where that could be done. Because the researchers aren't always informaticists. They're, you know, they're, their expertise is in something else. So really what, what the idea is is that instead of us centrally funding these resources and then people can use them either for free or for a low cost, the idea would be like we would give the scientists directly the, the money. They could only redeem it on some kind of cloud project but they would redeem it on the one that fit them the best. So then that one would flourish and grow more. So there would be, you know, the idea is you would want them to be very responsive to what the scientists wanted, which of course is gonna change all the time. We have to take a break. Today I'm focusing on the role cloud computing is playing at the National Institutes of Health. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the AFSI at Bethesda Health IT Day earlier this year. You just heard from Jeff Schilling, the acting CIO and Infrastructure and IT Operations Branch Chief at the National Cancer Institute. And before him, Jason Levine, the Associate Director of IT and Clinical Informatics, also at NCI. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm focusing on the role cloud computing is playing at the National Institutes of Health. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Bethesda Health IT Day earlier this year. In this segment of the show, we hear from Alistair Thompson, the CIO of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at NIH. So I'm going to talk about the NIH Data Commons as opposed to an NIH Data Commons, but I'll clarify that in a minute. Health IT is, is generating a lot of data. I think you may have noticed that. It's been exponential growth. Guess what? There's a tsunami coming, primarily driven by genomics, uh, particularly whole genome sequencing. The first human genome in, you know, 2000s, Dr. Collins led the project, $3 billion. Today, uh, in fact, about a week ago, Illumina announced a new sequencer that could do a whole genome sequence for $150. It's possible to sequence every person in the United States and begin to use that data. It's a lot of data. 
So there's been this growing unease at NIH about how we make this data sustainable, how we make it findable, interoperable, accessible, and reusable, fair. And it got to a point where we saw there were silos of data growing around, particularly in academic institutions, where those scientists could get at it, but no one else could. It was becoming impossible to move the data around because it's so large. A whole genome sequence typically is about 20 gigabytes for the raw read data, which is the, the most detailed information. Uh, and when you're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, patients, it, it's, it's too massive to deal with. So Dr. Collins formed a task force on data sustainability. One of them brought in experts from, from industry and said, so what should we do about this? And they recommended, you need to do some pilots because we don't know how to do this yet. Do some experimentation. And so what we've done is we've brought together uh, academia, industry, the cloud service providers, and nonprofits in a consortium designed to provide secure, scalable cloud storage and compute. And the compute part of it is very, very important, but also coupled with respecting privacy. So we all think about privacy in this world as HIPAA. Well, for us, it goes much beyond that, because in clinical studies, we have informed consent. Patients consent how their data is going to be used. That can be very nuanced. They may say, I only want it used by nonprofits, or only by NIH researchers, or I'm quite happy for use for general research use. All of those have to be respected. And so we need an environment that has not only compute and storage, but has identity and access management, which is driven down to the level of those consents so that a researcher can come in and say, I want, I want, I'm doing this kind of research. Show me the data that I can see based on the consents, both on who I am, what I do, and what the consents are. And to be able to not just look at one data set, like the, the massive data set that's in the GDC, but across a whole bunch of data sets. And so NIH picked three data sets that we're going to pilot this with. One is NHLBI's Transomics for Precision Medicine program. Top Med, the NIH Common Fund's genomic tissue expression, which is about how DNA gets turned into RNA and then gets turned into proteins within cells, which tells exactly how it's behaving out in the body. And then the, the NHGRI uh, Alliance of, of Genome Resources, which are model organisms, zebrafish, rats, mice, worms, and uh, yeast, several others. For the first time, you can do research that can, you'll be able to do research that connects these data sets. It's been impossible up till now. Let me talk a little bit about TopMed. 160,000 participants. We've got whole genome sequences now for 100,000 of them, which makes it the largest genomic data set in the world. Woohoo, go us. <laughs> it comes out of our existing cohort studies, Framingham Heart Study, Jackson Heart Study. It's designed to be, to be multi-ethnic. So one of the challenges uh, with genomic data sets today is it's primarily white and primarily male. And so this is designed to reflect the, the, the structure of the, the diversity of uh, the American population. And so it, it's, it's a unique data set. When we're done, it'll be about 17 petabytes of data. The analysis pipelines to work with that take thousands to tens of thousands of CPU nodes. You need a petabyte of RAM on your servers to be able to do it. It is simply not possible to do that in your data center. It has to be done in the cloud. But how do we, we, we do that? Um, so the government is typically not good at a few things. Large IT projects, moving quickly, and adapting to change. 
The Data Commons is a large, complex IT project. It needs to move quickly to address some critical needs with the massive amount of data we're generating, and technology is changing very, very rapidly, and it needs agility. Hmm. So, some lessons from previous efforts, somewhat similar. The government shouldn't be building its own tools. Academia and industry are building these tools now. Let's bring them in, modify, adapt them. That's a change of philosophy. Don't rely on contractors to do all of this. No offense, but you have different motivations to academia, for instance, to nonprofits. And so we need to bring them into it as well. We need to allow the, the research community and the health IT community to come to standards. We shouldn't be imposing them. So we had a challenge. How are we going to do this? No one entity has all of the knowledge to do it. We can't go to a company, an academic institution, um, a nonprofit who knows how to do this. So we have to build uh, a, a, a consortium to do it. It's a very high-risk program. Got to use agile, lean startup methods in order to mitigate that risk. And we've got to leverage community-supported tools, community standards, the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health. And in particularly, I'm passionate about not putting the government in the role of an integrator, because we suck at it. <laughs> <laughs> So the Data Commons Pilot Phase Consortium, we had options for funding this. We could have used contracts, which take a long time, but kind of cuts out a lot of nonprofits and other things that we can't do business with. We could use grants, but it takes, you know, like 18 months from an idea to getting something out there, and we have absolutely no control. It's fire and forget. Uh, we could use cooperative agreements a little bit better, but none of these provided the agility and flexibility we needed. Enter other transaction authority, which is something you will be hearing about much, much more from NIH. Uh, this is an authority that's been used heavily in, in, in DOD, particularly DARPA, and the authority is, belongs to the NIH director, the NIH Common Fund, uh, NCATS, and interestingly, NHLBI since 1972. We just never used it. Fun fact. It's best to define it as what it's not. It's not a contract. The FAR doesn't apply. I hear you rejoicing. It's not a grant. No federal assistance rules. I hear more rejoicing. Um, it's not a cooperative agreement. Um, there are no rules on IP. Uh, Bar Doyle doesn't apply. Uh, and so you can negotiate everything. It's extremely flexible. So uh, to give you an idea of just how fast things went, uh, we announced a research opportunity announcement in June. 30 days to let, submit letters of intent, 30 days to, after that to submit proposals once we'd selected them, and then we negotiated and awarded 13 uh, OTs before the end of FY17. It was an astonishing uh, achievement. We had our first face-to-face, -face, and we're all figuring out what it means to use these other transactions, because everyone thinks it feels like it's a contract, but it's not. And so all the rules are different. The consortium comprises academia, some commercial uh, entities, the cloud service providers themselves who need to work in this, and nonprofits. The Chan Zuckerberg Foundation is engaged with this as well. Why is this all important? Fundamentally, we've got to change the business model. Jeff mentioned we want to set these sailing, and then we'll fund researchers so that they can, can go and use it. Researchers are really good at doing deals with cloud service providers and getting grants from them, independent of NIH, to help support their research. It's to the benefit of the cloud providers because they get marketing stuff from it, plus uh, other things. We want them to be able, the researchers to continue to do that and to be able to bring that compute that they're buying to the data rather than trying to download data or replicate the data or whatever else. It, we're looking for a fundamental change in the business model. 
so that NIH is not continually funding more and more and more storage where the data actually has value. Um, and in uh, partnering, cost sharing is a key component of other transactions. Uh, and so it's a, it's a new way of doing business that we are working and going quickly. NHLBR is gonna be doing more of these, so keep your eyes out. All right, so we're gonna to come to your questions in a second, so start thinking of them. Audience participation, remember. But I'm gonna ask Alistair my, my follow-up. So OTAs are, are very interesting. I know you're not a procurement guy per se, that's not your job, so we're not gonna get into the, the challenge. But give me, if you can give me the, the, the 50,000 foot view, what was the reaction when someone brought up the idea of using OTAs for this? It, it was the logical and really the only way that we could do this on the time frame that we needed with the agility that we needed. So it was relatively easy, easily accepted by senior leadership. These aren't the first OTs we've done. The All of Us program uses them. Uh, the NCATS data connector running at UNC is also using them. So it's not entirely new. There's, there's angst particularly since a lot of these are executed by contracts people. It's like, what do you mean there's no FAR? Where am I going to, where's my foundation? And grass people, ah. But, you know, when you actually look at it, we can do whatever we like. It is, it's actually really wonderful. Um, we can go to someone and say, hey, we'd like to negotiate with you to do some research for us, which is what NHLBI is doing to looking at commercializing uh, some of the gene editing and, and uh, bone marrow transfusion methods for treating sickle cell disease, essentially an incurable disease. We have actually cured someone with gene, ed gene editing. We want to make that available to the, uh, the population, and the OT is the perfect way to do it. We have to take a break. Today I'm focusing on the role cloud computing is playing at the National Institutes of Health. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Bethesda Health IT Day earlier this year. You just heard from Alistair Thompson, the CIO of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at NIH. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm focusing on the role cloud computing is playing at the National Institutes of Health. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Bethesda Health IT Day earlier this year. In this segment of the show, we get into audience questions for the panel of Jason Levine, the Associate Director of IT and Clinical Informatics at the National Cancer Institute, Jeff Schilling, the Acting CIO and Infrastructure and IT Operations Branch Chief for the National Cancer Institute, and Alistair Thompson, the CIO of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at NIH. All right, so I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I came here with a pretty tight agenda, but... Um, where do you guys see things, uh, some sort of the nascent technologies like blockchain and uh, IPFS, interplanetary file system, and Mongo database on in the cloud environment, kind of playing into this, this um, um, more scalable, more accessible big data uh, repository or, or, or storage system? Um, and then, you know, because that kind of, some of those technologies offer, you know, ways to, to, val to um, provide integrity or, or to preserve the integrity of the information, the security of the information, and tie it back to identity. So I was just wondering if you guys are working on that, if that's something that, you know, is applicable to some of these OTAs, and if you're kind of working on going that route uh, or at least exploring it. So one of the awardees proposed blockchain, and we're going to be exploring it. Personally, I see some very interesting potential for it for handling the consents and putting the control of the consents in the hands of the patient so that they can receive a request. I'd like to use your data in this study. Here's the parameters of the study. Do you want to do that? Yes, I'm good with that. That record gets stored on the blockchain. It's immutable. They can also rescind it any time they want. 
it's cryptographically controlled so that unless it's on the blockchain, they can't access the data. Um, we see it as, a, as, as a, a both a good technology for it, but also empowering patients. All right, so we had a question from the audience, though, uh, privately, which was, uh, the question was OTA. What does that stand for? Just in case you're not familiar, Other Transactional Authority. I thought Alistair, you did a nice job of explaining it's, it's kind of an off-books contract, but it's not a contract. Here's another question. I'm Mark Wine from the VA. Looking five to ten and more years out, how do you see your work impacting financial models, like bundled payments or value-based purchasing? changes in diagnostic groups definition the biggest impact the financial side of it is is is, is really hard to predict remember we do we do research we're doing leading edge research so exactly how it gets used is a little unknown however one of our goals with this is to make this these tools available to clinicians so that they can go oh i found an interesting genomic signal in this patient who has some disease what does it look like in the data commons, in the data, in the GDC, in the other federated data commons there are going to be? That has the potential to drive, A, really get to precision medicine, but also drive the costs down because you now know, based on a large population of data, here is what the prognosis is for that person. Here are potentially the best treatments, which can drive a whole lot of different things in changing the model. It's interesting you brought that up because that's that's really where um, a lot of the research is somewhat criticized. That that you'll never be able to put that in people. But the reality is we just don't know how the economics of something. It, there's barriers today that just get dissolved by some other invention or some other model in the future. But I really think that um, a lot of us look at NIH. We really look at health disparities as a big problem. You know, we have. Populations in the United States getting sicker than other populations based upon their socioeconomic status or other factors. And then we also see, well, we have all these great things, but we have a set of population they can't get to those things. They're rural or they're, or they're poor or they're, they don't have something like uh, someone to drive them somewhere. Or, so we really are spending a lot of work in, in that area because all these things are great, but if if not everyone is benefiting, it's, it's not really good for everyone. And, and, and yeah, we know all the rich people are going to have access to er everything that's possible. But for us, we're for the, all of America, so we want all, all of it to be done. So we do look at some of that, but it's getting worse rather than better, right? A, a lot because of these very, very um, either expensive procedures or very expensive piece of equipment. And I think what, Alistair, you brought up earlier about the, the cost to do a genome, I, I know you don't do a genome, but you, you do something with it. Sequence it. But anyways, but the, down to 150 bucks, I mean, wow, right? I mean, it's uh, mind-blowing that you can now do a whole genome Maybe Jason, sequence. you said it, sorry. Oh, no, no, it was Al. Right. But I mean, I, I have to say, I have two ways, two ways to answer that. The first is that, uh, remember, I'm intramural NCI. We provide all of our care for free. We do not bill all of our researchers, any clinical care that comes out of theirs to patients of the NIH is provided free of charge. We literally don't, terms like bundled payments are things that we hear about and we don't think about. And it's kind of an amazing world, a tiny little corner of the healthcare universe that I live in. But the things that come out of our research really impact what you're talking about. Um, so I'm, in addition,
addition to my IT world, I'm actually a practicing clinical pediatric oncologist. And one of the most exciting things that's happening in my world is immunotherapy. And the two immunotherapy treatments that have just been approved within the last 12 months for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which in adults is largely an awful disease, but in pediatrics is a largely curable disease, they both cost on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars to administer to actual patients for the course of what they would need them for, for what you would consider to be upfront leukemia therapy. So um, it's something that we have to think about as an impact of what we do once it leaves our walls, and there's not much impact we can have on that inside our walls. All right, another question right here. Uh, I'm curious on how you can maintain the level of you know, high-performance computing within the cloud. Is that you know, with storage and the proper allocations to your scientists and researchers? Do you monitor the allocation, or is that being given to the cloud providers in general? Largely, I can just replicate what we would do locally in the cloud and not think of them as any different, right? I mean, there are obviously many models that you can deploy your cloud infrastructure and compute resources, but if I wanted to, I could just say I was gonna stand up a 32 processor core, one terabyte memory, however much disk space server for you, I'm just gonna make that an instance in the cloud, exact same specs, and largely, I would do it the exact same way I would do it if it were a computer in my data center. Now, these two, thinking about it at a slightly higher infrastructure level, can probably talk about how you now get away from that model. Because the goal is, if you're going to use the cloud, to not just replicate the exact same thing you do in your data center in the cloud, but instead use sort of the leverage, the, the better resources and economies of scale to maybe take that same 32 core processor machine and allocate it to maybe three investigators, because you know that they're not all going to be using it at the same time. We'll go, we'll go from okay. small to medium up. to large. No. <laughs> So, um, so I would say, in, in terms of us, uh, you know, not the two projects I mentioned, but because there, if you're going to the outside, it, you know, we have mechanisms for controlling and giving the interesting people the money to do the, the interesting work. But if we were looking at like what what hinders us from going to the cloud, it's really that transition funding model. Jason can do it at the project level, but if I'm doing it at the infrastructure level. We're really just starting to get a handle on what used to be where we buy the server and you can use it full throttle for its five-year lifespan, or now it's like, oh, no, you can't do that because that will cost us an arm and a leg if you do all this wasteful compute in the cloud. So I think that's something that we're just going to have to learn to put some levers in place so that we can, whether either through quotas or all, that other, all those other things, to do that. And now, you know, onto the bigger problem of maybe saying how do we how do we assign value to the compute? So I'll, I'll actually give you two answers. Um, one is related primarily to genomic data, where the high performance computing you need is you need to do, if you're gonna realign or revariant call 160,000 genomes, what you need is just a whole lot of CPU nodes with a lot of memory that are all running in parallel across them. That's a little different to some things we're doing in our intramural program where you actually need more sophisticated things. Biophysical simulation of, of you know, cell interactions and, and molecular interactions, where you actually need synchronization between the CPUs, you need shared memory. One is relatively easy to do in the cloud, and you know, those kinds of things, you, you don't need to variant call every day, you don't need to realign to a new human genome reference every day. Good for cloud. 
We've also got these biophysical simulations where we've got these great relationships with Amazon and Microsoft where they actually work with us to architect HPC clusters specifically for these needs. Microsoft in particular has invested heavily in InfiniBand infrastructure and so we can, working with them, we build these clusters. We're still figuring out the economics of it. We're going to be spinning up shortly in Azure a 512 node cluster, each with 32 CPU cores and a huge pile of memory, which will run about $150,000 to run for a month. Where are the economics of that compared with having it sitting in your data center and paying for the cooling and everything else? We don't know yet, but we know the economics are getting better. I just wanted to say one uh, interesting sure, thing, in. uh, no, and this is another tack, which is that the economics of it can also, now that you move your resources to the cloud, be a little terrifying. We had an incident within NCI recently where one of our investigators who used to deploy cl um, cluster-based compute resources internally to one of our internal clusters um, started to deploy them into an AWS cluster environment, and his code, which he checked into GitHub, had the uh, access keys in prior revisions of the code, so the code he checked in, in his mind, did not have them anymore, but of course, source control, they're there, and in 48 hours, we lost about, I think it was six or $7,000 worth of uh, compute resources, because now there are literally robots that scan GitHub for AWS access keys and utilize them instantly, and I mean, what my, my point being that there's whole new models we have to think about in the cloud about the economics, right? Um, what What's the wastage gonna be? Because we just have times where we're not really thinking about the security model the same way that we traditionally have thought about the security model. If he checked in access keys to something that's only behind the NIH firewall, the only person that could you know rack up a $6,000 bill in our cluster would be somebody who we can then bring to their director's office and fire or whatever. <laughs> or at least talk sternly to them. Sternly, very sternly. We have to take a break. Today I'm focusing on the role cloud computing is playing at the National Institutes of Health. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Bethesda Health IT Day earlier this year. In this segment of the show, we're listening to audience questions for the panel of Jason Levine, the Associate Director of IT and Clinical Informatics at the National Cancer Institute, Jeff Schilling, the Acting CIO and Infrastructure and IT Operations Branch Chief for the National Cancer Institute, and Alistair Thompson, the CIO of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at NIH. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm focusing on the role cloud computing is playing at the National Institutes of Health. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Bethesda Health IT Day earlier this year. In this segment of the show, the audience continues to ask questions of the panel. That includes Jason Levine, the Associate Director of IT and Clinical Informatics at the National Cancer Institute, Jeff Schilling, the Acting CIO of the National Cancer Institute, and Alistair Thompson, the CIO of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at NIH. Hi there, um, Andrew Richardson from Deloitte. As much as these challenges are clearly technologically unprecedented and uh, bring with them all sorts of uh, complication, there is a uh, cultural, behavioral, user, human side of it as well. Um, and if the three of you agree, I wonder what is the government doing in order to make sure that that, uh, that uh, end of the technological spectrum, the human side, uh, is learning how to use this technology in a responsible, secure, effective way, whether it's 
uh, being more FAIR, fair in the data side, all the way through to good data manners like not including access keys and that sort of thing. So I'll take this for the, the data commons. So one of the key capabilities within the data commons is training and outreach. Because we recognize that researchers, as you've seen, they don't know how, they, they're not informaticists. They, they, they're not IT people. They don't really understand how this works. So for the data commons, there's a really significant education component to work with researchers so that they can actually use it in a sensible way. They are aware of the potential issues. Plus working with the cloud providers, which is why part of the reason they're there, so that there is to some degree a big red stop button so that when you lose control of a 70,000 node cluster that's costing you $100,000 a day to run, you can stop it or can stop it automatically because the cloud providers don't actually have a lot of incentive to do that because if it just keeps going and churning, you know, well, okay, you get your bill. You, of course, that doesn't work with the Anti-Deficiency Act and things for the government, so we've got to have other protections. But it's, it is challenging to get the, the, a facile way for researchers to access the, this safely, you know, avoid them hurting themselves. All right, another question. Hi, Dietra Gray with Mantech. So you, you talk a lot about going to the cloud, and obviously security is the issue there. Is there also a plan to maintain your physical networks in-house? And if so, how are you, how are you kind of leveraging both of those? That's one part. And then the second part is around your, your commons data. Are you guys working very closely with the data sciences group, which Dr. Bourne started years ago, and now I believe um, someone else was just named um, the data science director under the BD2K um, initiative? So I'll, I'll take the first one. Maybe Alistair can take the second one. So yeah, of course we have, you know, we don't really see a, much of a lessening of our internal work. Until we really get the um, until we really get the a handle around the, the costing of, of the cloud, it's really not necessarily going to be cheaper in terms of compute. It's certainly a lot cheaper in terms of getting it up and running quickly and things like that. We will definitely have a, play, a long you know place for both, no, no doubt about it. And then um, I think one of the things I I really wanted to bring in was you know this idea of of the training piece. I mean, it's really a human factor thing that's what's limiting us is do people understand what they're what they're doing the the, the issue jason mentioned around this self up we had this is our most you know one of our most knowledgeable people so if somebody that really knows how everything functions yet can have this problem while wow, we really we really need to to worry about that so i think that that's the piece where um if we can get something that says, hey, you can test run all this stuff here, it's free, da, 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 and then migrate it, I guess, migrate it to the cloud. In fact, we actually even had a discussion around, as we brought these cloud services online, do we even let the customer know that they're cloud services? Because like, to them, what do they care? I, I don't know, like Jason said, I, uh, it's, it's in a data center somewhere, well, is it our data center or not? Well, believe it or not, um, after the OPM breach, a lot of the scientists reached out to me and said, I don't want my stuff in the cloud. And I said, well, you know, that OPM breach had nothing to do with the cloud. <laughs> and then well, the cloud's, actually the cloud's a lot more secure than what we have. <laughs> and what we have is very secure, but, you know, we, um, uh, I was at a, a meeting and the, um, uh, there was um, deputy CIO from Oak Ridge and he, his, basically, his basically mantra was, if the cloud is more secure just from an economic standpoint, because if the cloud gets hacked, that company's gonna go out of business. If the government gets hacked, that agency gets more money. 
So, 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 so it just makes more sense that they will not get in. So taking your, your second part first, um, so significant number of people from Phil Bourne's office are working on the data commons. And it is, it's part of the BD2K program. And so it's leveraging all of that. It's leveraging all the things that were learned at NCI. We're not starting from scratch. In fact, the way we structured this, where they've got a deliverables in 180 days, it's specifically designed to prevent them from going and reinventing the wheel. They have to go and reuse things. In terms of the economics of it, in terms of top med, it doesn't really matter what the economics are. We can't do it on-prem. It just doesn't work. You, you, we've got a 1,000 researchers working on top med data today, and they all want to work on these raw read files so they can look for virus signatures and DNA and things. The only way to do it is the cloud. Talking to our scientific director, Dr. Balaban, uh, for one of our first pilots of high-performance computing, we said, well, you know, it's looking like it might actually end up being more expensive than, than on-premise. And he said, I don't really care because my researcher got done more research in six weeks than she had in the previous six months. And so he says, I'm paying her and her lab a whole lot, and this makes her far more productive. So it's not just, it's, it's not an apples to apples, how much do the CPU cycles? What's the cost of progress? Hi, Paul Horan with uh, Snowflake Computing. Alistair, you mentioned uh, this organization called the Consortium, which is a, a group of different communities brought together to design the architecture for your target cloud computing infrastructure. Where are they in that journey? Is there an estimated timeline for uh, delivering something to you? And is there a, a point of contact at that? The overall pilot phase program is designed to be four years. Uh, the plan is to have it operate in six-month increments, um, consistent with the lean startup kind of model of build something, get people kick the tires, and then iterate on it. In terms of contacts with it, the NIH Common Fund webpages has all the information you'll need about contacting. Because this is an OT, um, we anticipate that sort of at each six-month point, there's going to be an opportunity to say, well, where do we want to go? Do we have the right players in the room? What are others doing that could be of interest? Again, this is where you looking at it and understanding it and saying, hey, guys, we've got something that we think may be really useful here, uh, I think can be really helpful. Uh, so keep tracking it. One real quick point of clarification for the way DOD does OTAs is you have to be part of the consortium to participate, is that the same? I know you're not an acquisition person, so maybe you need to put... So this is formative as to yes. how it's actually going to work. Okay. But OT Authority says we can go to someone and say, you've got a good idea, we want it. That's all the time we have for today. I focused on the role cloud computing is playing at the National Institutes of Health. I played excerpts from a panel I moderated at the FCA Bethesda Health IT Day earlier this year. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My panelists were Jason Levine, the Associate Director of IT and Clinical Informatics at the National Cancer Institute, Jeff Schilling, the Acting CIO and Infrastructure and IT Operations Branch Chief for the National Cancer Institute, and Alistair Thompson, the CIO of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at NIH. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 